time limited us uh, uh, to uh, just a portion of Acts chapter 2 on this Pentecost Sunday, but I, uh, I want to read just another portion, part of uh, the Apostle Peter's uh, speech. And this section is just pregnant with theological meaning that speaks about uh, the, uh, the providence of God and also the responsibility of man will also be a theme for uh, next Lord's Day sermon as well. But uh, in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to pick up with verse 22 here of Peter's speech, you know, the setting. The, uh, they've been in the upper room, uh, probably the same upper room where they had that first Lord's Supper that we're going to be looking at the, the beginnings of today. Uh, the Spirit comes upon them like tongues of fire, and they're speaking in various languages, the languages of the pilgrims that are there in Jerusalem uh, celebrating Pentecost. And Peter comes out and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That predetermined plan of God is starting to be unfolded here in the last couple of chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark now devotes the rest of his book, uh, chapters 15 and 16, uh, to be describing the passion of Christ. Uh, passion is the Latin word for suffering. And uh, you may have experienced before passion plays. Uh, we had opportunity to go to uh, the First Baptist of Atlanta passion play some 30 years ago, and it's an amazing performance. The most famous passion play in the world has been going on since 1634 in the German town of Oberammergau, and the entire town comes together with hundreds and hundreds of characters, and they bring out elephants and camels and things like that in order to, uh, to give an old medieval play in a production of the Passion of Jesus Christ. But a play is only as good or is only as meaningful as its characters. Well, Mark is going to introduce some different characters today to kind of set us up towards the movement towards the passion of Jesus Christ. And as we see these characters, we're going to see a great contrast between them. And in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, this morning we're going to see in verses 1 through 3 the contrasting of the Sanhedrin with Mary. Then we're going to see the contrasting of Mary with Judas and some of the disciples in verses 4 through 5, and the contrasting of Judas with some of the, and some of the disciples with Jesus in verses 6 through, seven, so, uh, through 9. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now and ask that he would transform us through the preached word of God this morning. <clears throat> Holy Father, we do come before you and we just ask God in faith uh, that you would use this passage of Scripture today. Uh, to give us insight that we just are lacking, uh, to show us great doctrinal principles that we need to know in order to stand fast in the faith. But Lord, also just to encourage our hearts, God, as we look at this tender story of, uh, of Mary anointing Jesus Christ, uh, I pray, God, that we would just fall more and more in love with you and that you would help us to be honest about our assessment about how we worship you and help us to go to school on the great character of Mary of Bethany this morning. We pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Again, beginning with our passage here in Mark chapter 14, verse one th- uh, uh, verses 1 through 9, we're going to begin here contrasting the, the Sanhedrin and their attitude with Mary of Bethany in verses 1 through 3. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Listen carefully. God says, Mark writes, Now the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. So you got this beginning here. You get this time marker here. It's the Passover uh, and unleavened bread. They were two days away here. Uh, So there's a time marker here. Uh, And, of course, the Passover is the most important feast on the Jewish calendar. Uh, It is uh, uh, to commemorate the passing over of the death angel on the houses of the Jews, those that had the blood applied to the lintel of the doorway, uh, and uh, the great feast that was going on uh, inside there, even as that death angel was not sparing the firstborn of the Egyptians. And now he was uh, smoting them as a, a judgment of God. And, of course, right after that began the Exodus. And that was where we celebrate the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, this usually goes on the 14th of Nisan, which is around March, April time frame here uh, in the spring. Uh, and that uh, Unleavened Bread kind of commemorates the hasty departure. They, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They had to eat unleavened bread. But it also, of course, is symbolic of getting the yeast of sin out of your life here, but they would celebrate this with the roasting of a lamb and the eating of bitter herbs, and we'll look more about this down in the next couple of Sundays, Uh, uh, but it was very, very important to them. To the Jew, it was sort of like Christmas and Fourth of July and New Year's all wrapped up into one. And, uh, and uh, uh, Jerusalem was the only place you could celebrate the Passover, so there was just this intense exodus of pilgrims coming from all over uh, Judean territory and from all over the Mediterranean world to be in Jerusalem uh, at the Passover. Uh, it is estimated that the population of the city of Jerusalem swelled to, some estimates go 500,000 to a million people according to Josephus. So uh, it, there, it was a huge crowd there. So that's why the Sanhedrin here is, is concerned here about a possible riot. People are feeling very nationalistic. People are feeling very religious. Uh, they don't much like the Romans. They don't much like the Sanhedrin sometimes. Uh, imagine people being anti-government. Uh, and uh, and they, it just take a little bit of a spark maybe to kind of uh, get them to rise up uh, and, and create problems for the Sanhedrin. Uh, now it's mentioned here that these are the chief priests and the scribes. These are the two great free groups of the Sanhedrin, the, the political body that's uh, responsible for Judea. The priests were mostly Sadducees, uh, and the scribes were mostly Pharisees, and both groups hated Jesus. As we've seen, as we've gone through the book of Mark, the, the Sadducees, they were the money makers. They were the ones that uh, they got, uh, made money off the concessions. And uh, so when Jesus came in and overturned the, 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 uh, the concessions and the, uh, the money changers and the people that sold doves and things like that, it, 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 it affected the the pocketbooks of the Sadducees. 
and it offended them. Uh, they were the high priestly class. They were the, they were the theological liberals. They didn't believe in um, uh, anything other than the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in resurrection. They just think after you lived, you just died. But then you had the Pharisees. They were the more conservative, but they had added rule after rule after rule and rabbinic teaching after rabbinic teaching to where you could hardly even recognize Judaism as being biblical in any way. There was just uh, elaborate systems of legalism, uh, and this, there's this, this, this hypocrisy in almost everything they did in these unbiblical traditions. So Jesus would point out just how unbiblical those things are. So they hated him because he was an offense to them. So they're ready to get together, it says here, seize him by stealth, that idea of guile or deception, and to kill him. I mean, I've never been in a meeting with men where we've decided to kill someone. <laughs> I can't imagine what a meeting like that would be like. But, but, but they, they are, they've been wanting to kill him, y'all, if you've been following along with us, since Mark chapter 3. If, if someone is a problem and you don't know what to do with them, you just kill him. Now, that is shocking in and of itself, but it's especially shocking considering these are the religious leaders of the country. They want to, they're plotting to get Jesus and kill him, but they don't want to do it at the Passover. They want to avoid all the crowds. They don't want to mess up the Passover uh, celebrations, even perhaps personally. They want to have a good time with their family. They don't want to have to deal with this political nuisance here, but Jesus has become a real problem, uh, so we've got to do something about him. Now, it's interesting, but Matthew 26, if you look at the parallel passage of uh, what's going on here in Mark, uh, he says that the chief priests uh, and the scribes, uh, the meeting took place in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Of all the people in this, all the characters in this passion play that we have here before us, Caiaphas is probably the one that has the most blood on his hands. You know, we think about the weakling Pilate. You know, we think about uh, some others. But Caiaphas and perhaps Judas, of course, uh, are the ones that are m- most culpable, uh, most uh, sinful in what they've done here. Uh, and Caiaphas had this uh, responsibility of he being the high priest, and he saw Jesus as a threat. If you want to know how this meeting kind of went, we can go back to an earlier account, John chapter 11, where uh, they had this meeting before about what they're going to do with Christ. Now, the, the, what, what happened here was Jesus went and brought Lazarus back from the dead. And this kind of messed up their plans. You know, Jesus keeps going and going and doing all these miracles that no human can do, and uh, we're going to deny his God, and, but he keeps performing these miracles, so we just got to kill him, you know? <laughs> Here's an idea. Why don't you believe him? <laughs> You know, but they're going to kill him, and they want to kill Lazarus too because Lazarus went and got raised from the dead. So we've got to get rid of that Lazarus too here. So you kind of get a little bit of insight from John here about what happened at that meeting. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. Now, John says, now, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together uh, into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned to kill him. Now, isn't that interesting? So, so they're out there talking about what do we do with Jesus, and Caiaphas says, listen, if we got to save our people, this guy's got to die. And John says, how interesting. (laughs) Caiaphas, as evil as he is, his doctrine is straight on. 
to save the people, Messiah must die. It's a shame they didn't teach that. But he seems to think that, but of course he's thinking politically speaking because he doesn't want the Romans to come in and take away all his concession stands. So here, here they are. They, they feel like they've got to get rid of Jesus, which of course is fulfilling what uh, Peter said, right? The, that he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But they don't want to do it uh, during the festival, during Passover. Well, when is he going to die? During the festival, during Passover. So God's plan has been moving along for all of these years, including, of course, all, going all the way back to Genesis, where the, uh, Genesis chapter 3, where the idea of, uh, of, the, of the suffering servant first comes about, all through Isaiah, through the Psalms, everything. It's all coming about to where Jesus would die for the people at the Passover. Why? Because he is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the Passover lamb. And for those of us who have the blood of Jesus, death uh, eternal death passes over them. So again, now you have a location context here. Again, one of the things about Scripture is just so, uh, it's just so credible. There's a location here. Time, we got a location here, and it was in Bethany. Now, Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem on the east side, on the, right on the other side of Mount of Olives. It's the last stop as the various pilgrims are all coming from north, south, east, and west. It's the last stop of the pilgrims before they actually enter Jerusalem themselves. Bethany was Jesus' base camp, if you want to think of it as that. He would go back that to Bethany and stay there during the week here. Uh, and he's staying at this, uh, this house of uh, Simon the leper. He's having a meal there now. Uh, so what we have here is actually a little bit of a parenthesis. This did not occur on Wednesday, did not occur on Thursday. This event, actually based on other uh, writers, occurred actually on Saturday. But what Mark is trying to do, he's trying to show this great contrast of the love of Mary of Bethany, who we're going to introduce, be introduced to as a character in just a moment, and the hatred of the Sanhedrin here. So they're having this meal, and they're having it at the house of Simon the leper. Now, y'all know anything about leprosy? I mean, leprosy is very contagious, very deadly. Of course, it dulls the senses, and basically you get infections and you end up dying. It's still prevalent. Uh, uh, there's leper colonies in India and Japan, other places around the world. Uh, and lepers, if you look at Old Testament, and you understand even uh, some of the principles in the New Testament, lepers had to be, had to be uh, separated. So, so you didn't go into a leper's house to eat dinner. All right? So what I'm assuming here, and I think what commentators assume, is that Simon Lep was a leper, but you can't cure leprosy unless you're a friend of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus probably cured his leprosy, but he maintained that title, Simon the leper, because he wants people to know, I was once cured by Jesus Christ. Uh, we wish we had more details, but evidently Mark's Roman audience knew who Simon the leper was, so he doesn't go into more details about who the Simon the leper was. But, but for, for the rest of his life, he went by Simon the leper. I mean, it's kind of, how would you like to be like, known as just the covid you know, for the rest of your life, you know. Uh, but, but I think he, again, it was a, a title of dignity because he could point to the example that Jesus actually uh, healed him here. So he's making this great contrast. He's got the table set here. Uh, and then uh, we're going to introduce uh, a, a character that's going to play a significant role and going to be a, a terrific example for us. There came a woman. 
Now, John identifies her as Mary, who we know of as Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. Uh, and some people uh, think conjecture that maybe Simon the leper was their daddy. Uh, that, that was the father. Uh, but she comes into this. They're, they're having this meal, uh, and all the men are laying down, as, as was the custom, laying down with their, on one elbow, eating with the other elbow uh, in this room, and this woman comes in. Now, this is a breach of etiquette. Women in that time, in that place, were not allowed to interrupt a meal of men, okay? That is, you're not eating men, men, a meal for men. Uh, and and she, Mary comes in, and she sort of disrupts everything. And there's a, there's a real social faux pas here that may have caused some tension uh, here. Uh, and, uh, but one of the things here you're going to see is Jesus praises Mary. What were the values of the culture were not necessarily the values of Jesus. And, and that's important for us as a church. It's important for you as a home to make sure that the values that you hold are the values of Jesus, are the biblical values. Let me just give you an example. We do not have... Uh, uh, we do not have women preachers in this church. Okay? It, do we, not have, we do not have women elders in this church. Why do we not have women elders in this church? It's because we think women are inferior. Is it because we think women can't do the job? Is it because we think women are silly or something like that? It has nothing to do with that. The reason why we don't have women elders is Paul told us we can't. <laughs> I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, okay? So basically, a woman can do pretty much all the other ministries within a church except for this one, preaching authoritatively and being in charge of the church, okay? So we have biblical reasons for not having women elders. And folks, because they're biblical reasons, we do not compromise them. There are so many wonderful roles for women in this church, but standing right here and preaching this is not one of them, all right? And we can do that because we have the confidence of Holy Scripture behind us. All of the apostles were men. All of the, the initial deacons were men. Uh, and that, that's a practice that we have. But if we did not have Holy Scripture, we could probably be rightly accused of, of not thinking favorably towards women. You understand well, it's the same thing with practices that you have. You need to have biblical warrant, biblical justification for the things you have. This idea that a woman coming into a meal is a faux pas and a breach of etiquette is not biblical. Okay? So Jesus welcomed her coming in. And she comes in, there's a, uh, and, and she, she is just overwhelmed with love here. And she says that she has an alabaster vial of costly perfume of pure nard. Now, we don't carry around alabaster vials of costly nard with us. So let me define a few terms here. Alabaster, of course, is, is, a, is, a, is a stone, uh, something like a soft marble, uh, and it was, according to Pliny the Elder, the best way to store uh, perfumes. It was, uh, it was hard. You could hollow it out, and you could put cap on it, that kind of thing, and it would be a great way. The, the, the alabaster vial itself is a very expensive thing. Pure nard. Nard, y'all, comes from the Himalayan mountains. That's a long way away from Israel. And it was part of a root, and the root would be boiled down. They would collect the oil, and it had a, a very fragrant, woody kind of smell here. Uh, and uh, it was uh, known for uh, something that you would do. It was so expensive, it would be something you would use to anoint a king. 
uh, or, or to, uh, to, uh, to anoint a, a body for, for burial here. Uh, and uh, John notes that the, the, the amount of perfume here was one Roman pound, which is 12 modern ounces. That's a lot of nard. 12 ounces is the size of a soda. Okay, so she's got a soda can of pure nard perfume in this alabaster vial. She doesn't just open the vial, she snaps it open so that it cannot be used again. And she pours the entire amount on Jesus' head. This is a very, very expensive gift. Some conjecture that it's a family heirloom. But I'm telling you, if you know something about Mary, if you look, read the account of John, I'm not sure that she didn't think Jesus is coming. I'm going to go buy this thing and had it especially for her. But it was so expensive, many people think it must have been a part of the, in the family for years or something like that. So she takes this vessel, she breaks it, uh, she, she, she pours it upon his head. Uh, according to uh, John, uh, he emphasized that Mary also anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped her, his feet with her hair. Of course, if it's 12 ounces, you could certainly do that, both on your head and on the feet. But one of the things that's interesting is she had no thought of the cost, no concern for the cost, which was different from the idea that the disciples had, as we will see. Now we see here the contrasting Mary with Judas and some of the disciples. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Again, John gives us the, uh, the identification of the main character here, those that are opposed to what Mary did, and it's Judas. Any surprise there? He says the main culprit was Judas. And they say, why has this perfume been wasted? If they just thought for a minute... Wasted on Jesus? Wasted on Jesus? That's what they're accusing her of. They said this money could have been sold. It's two, uh, two, 300 denarii. That would be about $4,000 in today's uh, accounting. That's a lot of money, isn't it? For uh, the pouring uh, out of uh, anointment upon somebody. Now, <clears throat> I, happen to, uh, I happen to live with an expert on essential oils. And uh, we did a little research last night coming back from Greenville. And uh, uh, you can still get, it's now called spikenard. It still comes from the Himalayan mountains. You can still get it in the form of an essential oil. And Mary, of course, is the mother of all essential oil salesmen within evangelical churches. Uh, and when you, you can get a little vial like that, maybe an inch long, for $60. So modern spikenard is about a dollar or two per drop. So even with modern techniques and flying it over on an airplane or put it in the container, it is still really, really expensive stuff. So all they could think, all they could be, these men, is to be reduced to the cost of things and think about why couldn't we have just given that to the poor. Here's another lesson, folks. We really have to be careful about judging someone else's ministry. Now, obviously, if you, there's a biblical way of judging someone else's ministry. If it's heresy, <laughs> that's bad ministry, right? If it's pulling away from people from the truth, it's about the vanity of man and, and, and giving men attention and glory and all that. It's bad ministry. But the Lord works different things through different people and different giftedness and in different backgrounds and different hearts and things like that. 
Mary had a passion for doing this thing. And these folks are just are, are, are stunned at it because they would never consider doing something this lovely to Jesus. They were just reduced to the basic cost of the thing. And it's sad. Here's this precious moment, and they're ruining it with their judgmental attitude. Say the money could have given to the poor. Also, if you want to know a little bit more about Judas's character, John elaborates on this idea. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, they always, John always makes that point, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put in the money box. So John didn't understand Judas this time, at this point in time, but he got him once he betrayed Judas, uh, Jesus. And then they went through their money box, and they realized, where's all the money? What has Judas done with the money? And he had been robbing from them for years now, and they didn't even realize it. So ignorant uh, they were of his intentions. But Judas was a thorn in the side of piety within this group. And he got the group kind of stirred up against Mary because he saw, what a waste. I could have bought a new coat with that. And he goes and, she goes and pours it on Jesus' head. Well, the other thing is, is she, they, she, they could not understand, Judas could not understand, because they didn't love Jesus. Or Judas didn't love Jesus. He couldn't understand why someone would be so in love with Jesus that they would sacrifice that much uh, for him. And it says here that they were scolding her. That idea of scolding, that's not just they're irritated her. It, it literally means to flare the nostrils in anger. It's used of a war horse, an angry horse, or in a bullfight. You know, you ever, well, you've probably never seen a bullfight, but you've you ever seen like a Bugs Bunny cartoon where they do a bullfight? The matador comes out there and the bull paws the ground and flares his nostrils because he's going to charge Bugs Bunny. <laughs> that, that's the description here. They were furious. First, this woman comes in, interrupts our God time. Then she goes and breaks this and pours 12 ounces of this stuff on his one drop would have done it. And that kind of really exposes their heart more than anything. As one commentator said, in scolding Mary, they were also insulting Jesus, whom they thought unworthy of such an extravagant gift. Whereas Mary did not even consider the cost to herself. Judas was planning what he was going to do with the money that the Sanhedrin was going to give him to betray Jesus. Now we see contrasting between Judas and some of the disciples and with Jesus in verse 6 through 9. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? For she has done a good deed. The ESV, I prefer, says a beautiful thing um, here to me. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before him for the burial. Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So there's a stunning rebuke from Jesus. Jesus is now, it doesn't use the same term, but he has some righteous indignation. He says, what are you doing? Why do you bother her? Uh, so he is rebuking them. They probably were stunned at, uh, 
at the level of that rebuke here. She's done a good thing or a beautiful thing here. They only saw waste. She saw a, a form of worship here. Um, but he says here, you always have the poor with you. Now, you've got to be careful here. Some people use that to kind of ignore the poor. Yeah, whatever Jesus says, we've got to do this and anything. Jesus never ignored the poor. He's not saying ignore the poor. But you've got to go back to Mark chapter 12. What's the sum of the great commandments, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay? There is a priority there. God first, then neighbor. That's what Mary's doing. <laughs> She's worshiping God. She's anointing the God-man. The poor are our neighbor. We also need to serve them, but she's doing nothing wrong by devoting herself uh, to, to, uh, to the worship of the Lord. People will say that, you know, you go, and, uh, you go and build a church building. Well, that money could have been used for the poor. Yeah, but it's being used to worship God. That's what God would have us do. And he gives some insight here. Uh, he gives some insight here. He says here, what she has done, she, what she, has done she, she has done what she could do. It's the same thing he said about the old widow with the two copper coins. There's an application to ministry here. In ministry, we do what we can do. Not, of us, not all of us have background. Not all of us have resources. Not all of us have gifting. But there is something all of us can do. And I think there's just sort of this minimalist, check-the-box kind of Christianity America which will kill the church. Most people do as little as they can do. But go to school on what Mary's done. She has poured out thousands of dollars to anoint Jesus' body. She didn't do it just to make him smell good. This was a Jewish custom. You would take a body. They didn't have embalming back then. Decay came quickly. It's a hot area. They would cover, as we see, as they go to the tomb later on, they would cover the body with spices and herbs and expensive nard and things like that in order to anoint the body for burial. But, but there's more to it than that. Mary has insight that even Peter doesn't have. Matthew doesn't have. John doesn't have. She knows Jesus is going to die. She's actually been paying attention to what he has been saying here. He said in, uh, in Matthew 26, in the parallel account, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man is to be handed over to crucifixion. So Jesus teaches that. It, yeah, it, could it be more clear? <laughs> this is not an issue of interpretation. Jesus teaches that, and Matthew says, hey, pass the olives, right? Mary listens. Mary hears. Mary understands. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. He is going to die. But he's going to die a criminal's death. And when you die a criminal's death, you experience a criminal's burial, which back then was to take your pierced body off of the cross and throw it into the valley of Gehenna to rot and be eaten by birds. And Mary said, you may have to suffer a criminal's death because you've got to die for us. But if I can do anything about it, you're not going to have to suffer a criminal's burial. I'm going to pour 12 ounces of the most expensive substance known to man upon my Lord because I love you. Because I love you. She did what she could do, preparing his body uh, for burial. And don't you love how Jesus closes here? It's prophetic, right? He said this around the year uh, 30 A.D. It's now the year 2021 A.D. And here we are speaking of Mary of Bethany, right? 
And what this woman has done will be spoken in memory of her. Her act of love, her devotion, her sacrifice is something for us to emulate, to copy, uh, to understand, to practice. She did what she could do. Mary was a woman of means. She gave a lavish gift. The poor woman who gave the two copper coins uh, gave all that she could to the treasury. And, and both of those could have caused scorn with others who watched it. What a pitiful little gift. What a too extravagant, poor, I mean, extravagant gift that is. Well, you just don't listen to them. <laughs> you do what the Lord has put on your heart to do. So unlike the Sanhedrin, they wanted to kill Jesus. And Judas, who wanted to betray him, Mary just wanted to worship him. And as much as it was possible to be able to do so. And uh, uh, as one commentator says, Though two millennial have passed, the testimony of Mary's sacrificial worship still stands as a perpetual memorial for her love of Christ. Her heartfelt gesture, looking to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, provides a compelling example of the kind of selfless, extravagant praise that honors the Savior. So as we go through this passion for the next couple of months, and we look at all the characters that are gone, let us not forget Mary of Bethany. Because of all the people that are involved in her, she might have been the best example of them all. Father, I pray that you would uh, just help us to take an account of our own life and how we worship you, and as importantly, how we don't worship you. We find piety, we find service, we find coming to church just inconvenient. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be those that, that worshiping of you, being with God's people, serving others, being at church, reading good books, reading the Bible, that would be what life's all about. And then you've blessed us with different ways for us to be able to pay for those things. I pray, God, that you would help us to, even in our fun and even in our work, be worshiping Christ as Mary did. In Christ's name.